Good morning. I am really excited to start our new uh, sermon series today, Your Story at Work. I don't know if you've picked up on this yet or not, but throughout 2020, I know, worst year ever, but throughout 2020, we've been telling a lot of stories, both in our sermons. A lot of our sermons have been stories from the scriptures about people like Daniel, about people like Abraham and Sarah, and all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Uh, after this, we're going to do a series, a very brief series out of the life of Ruth, and then a series out of the life of Paul, which, believe it or not, is going to take us all the way up to Christmas time. Uh, and we've also been showing you, telling stories of people in our church and showing you videos of, of things that God has done in the lives of people in our church. And the whole purpose is for you to take a look at your life and recognize that God is trying to write a story in your life, that if you'll let him, God will use you like one of the characters of Scripture so that when people observe your life, when people are around you and they see what's happening in your life and, and the experiences you've had and are having, they'll see God at work. They'll see his power and his grace and they'll see his goodness and they'll be drawn to him. God is trying to write a story in your life. What story is that? And, and what are you doing or not doing to be a part of that story? So that's the whole theme of 2020. And you're like, it's just now July and you're just now telling me this. But um, that's why we're starting this series today. And it's a short series, four sermons, called Your Story at Work. Because when you look at the story of your life, a lot of the time you spend in your life is spent working. When you're a kid, you're going to classes, you're doing homework, you're studying. When you start a career, you're going to work from 8 to 5 or maybe from 7 to 7. You're going to work 40, 50, 60, maybe even more hours per week. If you're retired, you're still working, you're volunteering, you're doing mission work, you're caring for an elderly parent or spouse, you're, you've got things on your plate. And all of us throughout our lives, we have these little obligations, these chores we have to do. Uh, we have ministry we're involved in. We've got uh, things that come up in our homes. There's always work to do. And how does that apply to your relationship with God? How does God tell his story in your life through your work? So next week, we're going to look at what your work says about you. The quality of your work can actually be a witness to the world of God's glory. And then two weeks from now, Alan's going to talk about earning a voice on your job, being able to do your job in such a way that people will hear from you the glory of Christ and hear the gospel from you, earning your ability to be a witness to others. And then our last message, the fourth week, is going to be about managing people. Many of us at some point in our career, in our work lives, find ourselves overseeing somebody else, supervising somebody else. How do we do that in a way that is biblical, God-honoring, and Christ-centered? But today we're going to talk about the question, is your work a calling or a curse? And, and I'll tell you where I get this title from. There are three basic attitudes that I've seen Christians have towards work. Three basic attitudes that I've had towards work. And the first one is the idea that work itself is a curse. It's a necessary evil. We've got to work, uh, but we hate it. We just want to get it over with. Uh, I've, before I got into the ministry, I had a variety of jobs, and some of them I look back on finally, and, and many of them I don't. Uh, one summer, the summer before my senior year of college, I actually had two jobs going into that summer. I had an a, a office job during the day, and at night I was going to work 
for a, a shipping company in their warehouse unloading semi-trailers full of boxes, basically. Uh, and I'm working two jobs because I was planning to get married in less than a year. I, I wanted to save up as much money as possible. Well, it didn't quite work out. The office job sort of dried up after a few weeks. The, the company just didn't have enough money to pay me anymore. And so guess what? I didn't come into work anymore. Uh, but the, the warehouse job lasted the whole summer, and it was miserable. And y'all, I don't mind heavy physical labor. I like to get a good sweat on once in a while. In fact, I got in really good shape that summer. And I don't even mind people yelling at me. I, I played sports in high school. I'm used to people pushing me. But at this job, my supervisor, the guy who was yelling at me every night, I mean, basically verbally abusing me every night, was about my age. That's different when it's someone who's old enough to be your dad or your mom, but this guy looked like he should have been in the Hitler youth. And so every night I went to, the, I went to work and had to deal with someone who I, I really wanted to punch in the throat every time I saw him. I know, I know, that's bad, but it's the way I felt. And, and it wasn't the safest work environment. There were several times where things happened where I almost got seriously hurt. Sum it up this way. One night on my way to this job, my car broke down. I mean, it just absolutely stopped running. And I should have been very upset by that because I loved this car and it was going to cost me several hundred dollars to get it fixed. But my immediate emotion was, oh, thank God. Because now, at least tonight, I don't have to go into work. For those four hours I would have been unloading boxes and getting screamed at, I would be free. And that's how a lot of us feel about the work we do right now. I hate it. I wish I didn't have to do it. It's a necessary evil. Someday I look forward to not working at all. There's a second attitude we have, and that is, well, this is the best option available. Again, we know we have to work, we need to eat, we need to earn a living, and so we choose a career path based on, well, this sort of fits my interests and my talents, it's the best I can come up with, and that was me before I was called into the ministry. I had a career plan in mind. I went to school and got trained for it. I got some basic experience on the lower levels of this industry, and I was excited. I had a sense of hope, but at the same time, I had a lot of misgivings too. Would I really enjoy this? Was I really suited for this? Would I be good at it? Would this career be meaningful? And that's how a lot of, a lot of Christians feel about their work too. This is the best I can do. I, I know I have to work, so I guess this is as good as anything else. This is the le least disgusting option before me. And then there's a third attitude, and that's the attitude that says, my work is a calling, not a career. I don't just do this to get paid. I do this to serve the Lord, and I find meaning in it. It's an act of worship for me to work. I've shared with you in the past, and I'm sure I will in the future, how God called me into the ministry, and it was just after Carrie and I got married and not long after graduation. And I, I won't share that story again, but I will just say this. I felt such a sense of excitement. I mean, I cannot tell you how thrilled I was, how hopeful I was about the future, because now I knew that I would be doing what God put me on earth to do. Now I knew that my work would be meaningful, that I would be doing something that actually made the world a better place, that, that everything I did would be in, in service to God himself. I was so excited. And here's what I'm here to tell you today. Every bit of work you do can be as meaningful as my calling into the ministry. Your work can be a calling too. Now, how do we get there? Well, there's a couple of things I want you to see, a couple of points I want to make, and then a challenge for you at the end. So 
Point number one, we need to realize the blessing of work. Realize the blessing of work. By the way, we're in Genesis. We're going to start in Genesis 3, and then our main text is Genesis 1. So you can be turning there if you like. But realize the blessing of work. I'll I'll just share with you. I love my job. I love being pastor of First Baptist Church. But every week, there are lots of things I do that honestly, if you didn't pay me to do them, I wouldn't do them. There are lots of things I do in a typical week that I don't enjoy. Uh, that's why it's work. It's not, it's not a hobby. It's, it's, it's work. And all of us have those things, that, those assignments laid out in front of us that we just, oh gosh, I wish somebody else would take this. Why do I have to do this? It's, sometimes there are things that are so hard, we don't sleep well the night before. And, and so that causes us to see our work as a curse. But is that biblical? And some say, yeah, isn't it? I mean, doesn't it say in the Bible that work is a curse in Genesis 3? And what they're talking about is the story in Genesis 3 in which Adam and Eve have just committed the first sin in human history, and God is coming to them to say, okay, here's the consequences of you introducing sin into this pure and holy environment that the world was. Here are the consequences. And Genesis 3, 17 through 18, here's what he says to Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So what God is telling Adam is, up till now your work has been a pure blessing. Your work has been fruitful. Your work has been satisfying. Up till now, as a farmer, you and the earth have been in harmony. You've been teammates in bringing forth food for human beings to eat. But now the earth will be your enemy. Now work will be cursed. Now, in order for you to extract food from the ground, you're going to have to beat your enemy. And it's going to be tiring, and it's going to be tedious, and, and you'll, you'll pull weeds one day and bake, break your back pulling all the weeds out of your field, and two days later, you'll come back, and there'll be just as many weeds as if you'd never done the work. And you'll, you'll tend, uh, you'll cultivate a, a crop for a full season, and right before harvest, a frost will come in and destroy most of the crop. I mean, it's going to be hard, Adam, and that's a result of human sin. What he's telling us is, because of human sin, Our work on earth is often difficult. Our work on earth is often unsatisfying. It's often unfruitful. It's often backbreaking and stressful. So our work is cursed, but it is not a curse. Our work is harder than it should be, but it is still a blessing. Now, how can I say that after what I've just read from the scriptures? Well, two things. First, notice there are two more curses that God defines in Genesis chapter 3. He talks to Eve, and he says, your marriage is going to be cursed. From now on, husbands and wives, they used to just get along great because there was no sin between them, but now they'll be in competition with one another. You'll want to rule over him, and he'll want to dominate you. And and so marriage will be cursed, and childbirth will be cursed. Whenever you give give birth from now on, it's going to be with incredible pain. It's going to be the most painful experience you've ever had. Now, let me ask you something. I mean, we know both of those things are true. Anybody who's ever been married or observed a married couple, anybody who's ever given birth or been in a birthing room or seen a movie about giving birth, we all know that everything that that God says in Genesis 3 about marriage and childbirth is true. But does that mean those two things are a curse? Well, of course not. 
Childbirth is a beautiful blessing. So is marriage. And yet, we can say the same thing about work. Work just got more difficult when sin entered the picture, but it's still a blessing. Do you see what I'm saying? Second reason. Second reason I say work is a blessing. Look at the timeline. When did God first give human beings work to do? It wasn't after the curse. It was before. So let me show you. Genesis 1, 27 through 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here's the first human being, Adam. He's so new, he's still got that new car smell on him, that new human smell. And God's already giving him work to do. God says, hey, welcome to life. Welcome to this world. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be my representative on earth. I want you to manage creation and take care of every creature on this earth and make sure that everything uh, has what it needs. I want you to have dominion over this world. That was Adam's first job. So work came before the curse. In fact, in chapter two, we see Adam naming the animals. And I remember growing up, I used to think that meant, well, the reason we call an armadillo an armadillo or a duckbill platypus a duckbill platypus was because that's the name Adam gave those creatures. And then I grew up and realized, well, Adam didn't speak English. At least I don't think he did. So that's not the answer. What we see instead is Adam taking inventory. Adam is starting his job and he's saying, okay, so my assignment is to oversee the animals uh, that, that live on this planet. I better get to know them. There's an aardvark. There's, a, uh, there's an armadillo. There's a kangaroo. Again, work came before curse. Work is a blessing. It is a blessing from God. It is, it is God saying, I have given you meaningful things to accomplish. So see it in that light. Second point, realize the calling of work. Work isn't just a blessing. Work is also an opportunity to live out our purpose in this world. If I haven't said this to you well enough yet, I need to say it again, because this is one of the main points I get from Scripture. Every human being has purpose. Your life has purpose. You were created for a reason. God didn't just allow you to be born because of some kind of biological function. God, Psalm 139 says it very clearly, he crafted you in your mother's womb. He knew every day that you would live, and he created you for that purpose. Ephesians 2.10 says it also, that there are specific good works that God prepared ahead of time for you to do. So you are his masterpiece, his his handiwork. He crafted you in such a way that you were custom designed for the things he wanted you to accomplish on this earth. You have a purpose. And yeah, part of that purpose is that there are people that God has placed in your life, your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, that God placed in your life for you to love in his name. That's part of your purpose. Yes, you have specific skills, you have resources, you have spiritual gifts, you have experiences, all of which enable you to take those things and, and, and serve God with them. And that's part of your purpose too. But part of your purpose is the work that you have in front of you, the assignments that you have, obligations you have every single day. That's part of your calling. 
And unfortunately, can I just confess something to you? We as churches, we as preachers, we haven't done a good job of equipping people to fulfill that purpose through their work. I mean, we've put a ton of energy into equipping you to volunteer as a life group leader, as a nursery worker, as a, as a student ministry volunteer, as an usher, as a greeter. We're good at putting you to work within the stained glass windows of the church or even sending you out on mission trips, but we're not so good because we haven't put the work in at equipping you to serve God and fulfill your purpose on your job, in your classroom, at your home as you're caring for your children, or, or whatever your work happens to be. And, and that has led us, unfortunately, to have this sacred secular divide in our minds. And so we literally think, I mean, I guarantee you, there are some of you watching me right now who you literally think that the work that I do as pastor of First Baptist Church is more important than the work you do, whatever it might be. And that's just not true. And you might think, okay, so anything I do for the Lord, that's sacred, but the stuff that I do just to get paid, well, that's secular. That's not as important. And, and I'm here to tell you that's heresy. That is absolutely not true. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about from Scripture. So think about what we know in the story of Exodus. In Exodus, we see the nation of Egypt, most powerful nation on earth at the time, and basically the breadbasket of the Middle East, is about to experience a famine. So hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people are going to be in danger of starvation, and God wants to prevent this. So does he send a prophet or a priest? No, he sends a guy with management skills, who we know is Joseph, the son of Jacob. And Joseph steers that nation towards prosperity and preservation from this famine. Uh, I'll give you another example. A few hundred years later, God's people are, are on their way to a new land, and they're establishing the nation of Israel for the very first time. And God wants there to be a place where they will gather for centuries to come to, to meet together and to experience his presence. It's called the tabernacle. And God wants it to be a beautiful place. He doesn't just want it to be a building or a structure. He wants it to be a place where you walk in and everything you see says something specific about the character of God. He wants it to be a place of beauty and majesty. Now, Moses was alive then. Aaron was alive then. These were two prophets. Miriam was alive then. That's three prophets. God doesn't call any of them to do the job. Instead, he raises up a guy named Bezalel. Now, this is somebody you probably don't know of. You're probably not familiar with him, but Bezalel was an artist. He was a craftsman. By the way, side note, we as churches, as Christians in general, have not done a good job of celebrating people who've been given artistic gifts. The exception is music. We have an appreciation for those who can stand up and sing and those who can play certain instruments, but people who can, who can draw, who can paint, who can write, who can perform uh, in a play, people who can dance, people who have these artistic gifts, we haven't, we haven't seen those as valuable. We've said to people like that, oh, you know, go get an engineering degree or a business degree instead of celebrating who God made them to be. Here in the book of Exodus, we see God raising a Bezalel and saying, you're my man. You're the one who is going to do this work that's going to impact centuries of worshipers. And then we move forward. The nation of Israel is displaced. The city of Jerusalem is destroyed. A group comes back to rebuild. And one of the first things that needs to happen is the walls of Jerusalem need to be rebuilt. God doesn't send a preacher. That's not a preacher's job. 
he sends a building contractor, a guy named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem and it keeps people safe for generations to come. In the New Testament, we see a young preacher named Apollos who's very, very gifted, but doesn't really have his stuff together, theologically speaking. And he needs someone to mentor him, to help him get uh, his theology straight and his doctrine correct. Paul is in the world that day. I mean, he's around. He could have used Paul. He could have used any of the apostles, but he doesn't. He brings along a working couple, Priscilla and Aquila, tent makers, and they come alongside Apollos and they mentor him. By the way, in the Bible, when these two are mentioned, Priscilla is usually mentioned first. A lot of scholars think that's because she was sort of the leader. She was the one who was the emotional, the outgoing person, the emotional leader of the pair. And these two people come alongside and they raise up Apollos and and equip him for ministry. Last example, God wants to start a new church in the great Greek city of Philippi, one of the most significant churches in the New Testament. So who does he start with? Yeah, the Apostle Paul, but who's the first member of that church? Can you remember? It's a businesswoman, a successful businesswoman named Lydia. And I don't know this for sure, but I would bet that that woman, because she was successful, financed a lot of the early church's ministry. So I just gave you five examples of people who did ordinary jobs, not quote-unquote sacred jobs, and yet because they did their jobs with excellence, God used them to save lives, God used them to establish worship, God used them to transform people's souls, God used them to change the world. Now you might say, okay, I get it, Jeff, but You're talking about impressive kinds of jobs like building contractor or or management or business. I I don't work that kind of work. I'm I'm just a student. I'm just, you know, doing homework or I'm I'm just a a woman who's taking care of her elderly parents or I'm I'm just mowing yards or I'm just changing diapers or I'm cleaning somebody else's house or I'm shingling roofs. I mean, can God really bring dignity and meaning to that kind of work? Well, let's look at David. What is David doing when we first meet him in 1 Samuel 16? He's tending sheep in a field. And we have sort of this romantic vision of shepherding because it's used so often in the Bible, in the Bible but there's a reason why David was given the job of shepherding. He was the youngest in the family, so he got stuck with the worst job. He didn't want to be a shepherd. No kid grew up in biblical times saying, I, I hope to grow up and be a shepherd someday because it was dirty work. It was... It was unrewarding work. You had to live among the sheep. You didn't get to have a normal life. In fact, we see in the next chapter, 1 Samuel 17, David goes to the front lines where where Israel is, is set up to fight against the Philistines and his brothers are at the front lines, and he's going there to to share with them a message and some provisions. And Eliab, his oldest brother, sees him and taunts him. And he says, What are you doing here, little brother? What'd you do with that miserable little pack of sheep that you're supposed to be tending? Who's looking after them now? And you hear the sarcasm in Eliab's voice. You hear what he's saying. He's saying, look, I'm a man and I'm doing man's work. I'm being a soldier. You're a nobody, so go back home and do your nobody's work. And yet, David's undignified, unprestigious job equipped him to write Psalm 23 which is only the most beloved psalm in in human history. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That work prepared him to fight Goliath. He stood in front of the king of Israel and said, listen, I've 
I've fought off lions and bears to defend my flock. So if God can protect me from them, he'll protect me from this Philistine. It, it equipped David to be the king. He was a shepherd to his people. Even when David failed and he had to be confronted by Nathan, Nathan the prophet came to him. And what did Nathan do? He told him a story about a man with a beloved sheep. So all of this, all, all of David's time spent in the shepherd field was meaningful. God used it. Not only that, look through the Bible at how often God used shepherds in significant ways. Not just David, but Abraham, Jacob, Rachel, Moses, Amos. That's six examples, including David, of people who God used in amazing ways who, when he first called them, were working in the shepherd field. And not only that, look at how often God uses the analogy of shepherding to describe himself. In the Old and the New Testament, the most famous example, of course, is John 10, where Jesus said, I am the good shepherd of the sheep. They know my voice, and I know them, and I laid down my life for them. So you see how God took the most mundane, unrewarding, non-prestigious profession, and he gave it dignity, he gave it meaning, he gave it importance, and he can do that for your job, for your work, whatever it might be. Now, the question is, will you let him? Because I, I hate to tell you, and this is a, an awful thing to say, but it's true, most of us would rather gripe about our work than let God change how we feel about it. Can you deny that? We enjoy griping. We don't enjoy letting God change us, and yet that's exactly what needs to happen. And, and I know I'm not, I'm not diminishing the difficulties you might have in your work. Some of you, I'm sure, are forced to go into what, we, what could only be described as a toxic work environment every single day. Some of you probably have bosses that make my boss at that warehouse job look like Mary Poppins. Some of you, I'm sure, are doing jobs right now that you are completely unsuited for. It doesn't match any of your interests or gifts. You're just doing it because it's do that or starve. And I get that. I'm not trying to minimize the pain of any of that. What, I, what I'm saying is God can redeem even that. So here's my suggestion. Here's my challenge. At the beginning of each day, starting tomorrow, at the beginning of each day, just pray to God. And first of all, say, Lord, thank you for giving me work to do. And second of all, list before him the things you have on your plate that day all the things that you know you're going to have to do. Lord, today I've got this test in geometry. Lord, I've got, today I've got to teach these kids this unit. Lord, today I've got to take my children to a doctor's appointment. Lord, today I've got this meeting. I've got this difficult conversation. I've got this project I have to finish. List it all before the Lord and then say, now God, help me to do all of this today in a way that makes you proud. Help me to do it with you as my audience. Help me to do it in a way that brings honor and glory to you and that brings joy to me. Help me to see the joy and the meaning in what I do and just see what happens when you begin to pray that way every single day. God will bless what you do. God will show you the purpose in what you do. I believe that. Now, one day, Jesus had a work assignment on his plate that he absolutely didn't want to accomplish. See, he was dreading it so much, in fact, that he fell to his knees. He fell on his face before the Father and prayed, Lord, let somebody else do this. Take it away from me if possible. He was praying with such intensity that drops of blood were flowing from the pores in his scalp. He was absolutely opposed to doing this, and yet he said, 
not my will but yours be done. And he actually got up and did the job with joy in his heart, according to Hebrews chapter 12. He went to the cross. That was his work. That was his life's work. He went to the cross and he redeemed us. And that's why if what you hear in this message is work hard so God will love you, then you didn't hear the message. Then I didn't do a good job because there's literally nothing we can do to impress God. Because of the work Jesus did, God includes us in his family. It's because of what he did, not what we do. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Now, here's the challenge for us. We have this incredible gift. Jesus has given his life. He has died in our place. And and so we come in and, and we're sons and daughters of the king, free of charge. How can we say thank you? One way we can say thank you is this. Every time we have a job we don't want to do, every time we have something on our plate that we wish someone else would take, and we take that and we do it with joy in our hearts without complaining, we do it to the best of our abilities, we do that with the intent of glorifying God through that work, every time we do that, we're actually reenacting the gospel. Don't you see? Because we're doing something we'd rather not do, but we're doing it because it's what God placed before us. It's, it's the opportunity we have to show the world his love. The Holy Spirit takes that as a worship offering, and he's pleased with it. He inhabits it. He empowers it, and he uses it to his glory. We'll see how next week when we talk about what your work says about you. But for now, for now, let's just all join together in prayer and offer our work together to the Lord.